Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Guys, I didn't think I was going to make it this week. <laughs> like, this, dude, I had a stomach bug. Like, stomach bugs are the worst. It ripped through this, my house. <laughs> ripped through it. Just like, it's the worst. We're glad you're better. Ugh. And I here drank to record. nothing this week, just water and broth. But we're glad to have you back. And Joanna you... does not want to talk about stomach stuff. I get it. <laughs> you, drank, you, know... you drank a lot last You know week? who else refuses to talk about stomach stuff? My wife. I, yeah. Is that a bad thing? Especially with our <laughs> with our listeners here? I don't know, you know. <laughs> Ugh, whatever. It's not fun. Uh, but yeah, I'm glad to be back. Yeah. So <laughs> what have you been Adam? reading, Adam? Anyways, <laughs> what have I been reading? Well, I, I want to talk to you about uh, a much maligned. I, re- I read about a much maligned olive that I think <laughs> needs, you know, needs some respect. Not really. I actually don't think the olive needs respect. I enjoy it, but I did like Pete's piece uh, uh, today that published uh, well yesterday, I guess, for those listening on the actual Friday when we published this podcast uh, about why the Kalamata olive has never taken off in the martini. Mm-hmm. Um, thought it was really interesting, fun little read. And Pete, I mean, I remember when Pete brought it to the editorial meeting, like, why is this? And it's kind of like, huh, yeah, I wonder, maybe because it's just not as good of an olive. I enjoy it in a Greek salad, but otherwise. Well, I, they're wildly popular. They are. But Flavor profile wise, I think that the Cavalastrano, Castle Vetrano, yeah. far superior olive, yeah, yeah for sure. far superior olive, mm-hmm. and therefore far superior martini olive. But I, I liked that he was thinking about it, you know, yeah. like what, 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 where are we going with this? Why isn't it more popular? And you know, yeah. I do, I didn't, I never heard of the feta stuffed yeah. Kalamata that I was interested in. Oh yeah, uh, in a vodka martini only. <laughs> Which, again, the piece talks about. Um, but really interesting in terms of just examining why certain olives took off and why it's these specific olives that is the junk garnish for every mar- – the default garnish for almost every martini, whether it be vodka or gin-based. Uh, fun piece, fun piece. Yeah. Can I add a bit of context here that I think is maybe interesting to our listeners, hopefully? Yeah. So I think one of the other reasons why Kalmatas haven't taken off, um, in addition to, you know, maybe they're not as popular, that people don't think they taste as good, they're, maybe the visual appeal is a little different or, or less striking than a Casamitrano. Yeah, is that they are actually way harder to stuff. Black olives in general are much harder to stuff than uh, green olives. And it's sort of alluded to in this piece in a way because the green olives are picked uh, earlier. They're right. firmer in texture. And when you think about how important um, stuffed olives can be in the martini setting, I mean, classically blue cheese, um, <clears throat> you know, as described here, feta. I think the ones that are mentioned here, like the feta stuffed ones, must be done in a – they're not done like on site at a bar. No they're way. purchased product. But but in general, like I, as a bartender, experimented with a lot of different kinds of olives and like no black olive worked very well mm. uh, for, for stuffing because they just fall apart. Yeah, the bottle, the body, because it's ripe, is softer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I like the piece. What about you guys? What have you been reading? Go, Zach. Sure. Um. So for me, actually, a piece that uh, was really interesting to me because it brought a little bit of much needed sort of optimism into a th- topic that I've been thinking about a lot uh, recently, which was uh, the recent uh, VP Pro Q&A we did with Patricia Green Sellers about turning their smoke-tainted grapes and wine into uh, whiskey and other distilled products. And 
you know, we're not like in the peak of uh, fire season here in the Northwest, thank God. Um, but and and the last year was actually a pretty mild one, all told, for most of the region. But you know, every year is a fire threat year these days, and for a lot of producers, the hard to ignore reality is that unless there are methods devised or outlets created for smoke tainted grapes or smoke tainted wine, it's going to be a problem. I mean, it already is a problem. And as it becomes more prevalent, it will only become more of a problem. And, you know, my, one of my big fears, you know, shared a ton here on the pod before, is like, it's going to keep people, it's going to turn people off from growing grapes and making wine if the level of risk that goes into it becomes intolerable. And so reading about an interesting approach and, and attempt to kind of create a really interesting, delightful product that also perhaps has lots of consumer appeal out of grapes that just simply can't be vinified into red wine in particular, it was, you know, it was inspiring to me and, um, you know, uh, filled me with a little bit of hope. <laughs> so I got that. Nice. How about you, Joanna? I liked that Q&A as well. Uh, I really liked Will Hawks's piece this week on um, kind of the revival of Guinness, um, in Britain, and I, I think something that I didn't realize is that, and, and as the piece says, until relatively recently, Guinness and its rivals were thought to be old hat in Britain, a niche drink for rugby fans, older Irishmen, and those with an emotional connection to Ireland. I thought it was just as kind of beloved as it is here in the States, and uh, I guess I just didn't realize that the pandemic played a pretty big part in its revival. And now kind of stout and nitro stout is extremely popular um, in the UK. I have to say, I've actually seen st- more stouts and nitro stouts even like here, yeah. even at Trader Joe's, like more than just Guinness or mm-hmm. when they stock. Like there's a few now that they're always stocking, not just when they think we're getting close to St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, I think, yeah, again, people just like really got into it again, Yeah, which is cool. I, I guess I didn't realize it ever went away, especially in the UK. Yeah, I guess I. Anyway, I liked that piece. So, so for today's topic, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about wineries. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting is, you know, I was in Napa and Sonoma and San Francisco last week for work, and uh, every time I go to a region that we cover a lot, I like to sort of see what other people have said about that region as well, you know, other publications, et cetera. And one of the things I always find myself reading is the one thing that I still think uh, Eater does very well, which is their heat maps. Yeah. It's basically the only thing that anyone reads on their site anymore, but it is very good journalism in terms of like at least telling you what's cool and hot and whatever. Yeah. And I was curious what their heat map said for the Napa Valley. Mm-hmm. And so like what were the top restaurants in the Napa Valley? And there was some of your, you know, standards, you know, they had uh, mustards on there, which has been around for a while. Like sort of saying, you know, it's a classic, it's an essential, it's something you should think about uh, again. Um, they had, you know, uh, Angel. I think I'm saying that correctly, in downtown Napa, which is a real, it's apparently a winemaker hangout. I didn't realize that until this trip. Um, but, you know, really classic French food. And then they had Ashes and Diamonds on their essential restaurants The winery. List. The winery. Yeah. And in the write-up said, it's one of the best, wi- it's one of the best restaurants in the Napa Valley hmm. that you can only go to if you book a tasting. And I thought that was really interesting. And I actually went to Ashes and Diamonds about two years ago, right when we were coming out of the pandemic. Naomi and I went for this for uh, you know a vacation over the summer, and I think I talked about it on this podcast. 
it was a fucking amazing meal. Mm-hmm. Like, did, it, it was a, it was lunch with the tasting, and we were there with two of our really good friends, like one of Naomi's best friends from college and his husband, and like we sat down and were blown away mm-hmm. by the. And we had, we were, we gone to dinner together, you know, at multiple restaurants in in the valley, etc. But it was just a really great meal, and I was like, holy shit. Why is no one else doing this in this way? It it felt like a true restaurant. There was beautiful shared plates. There were individual entrees. This wasn't your typical like we've paired a small bite for each wine you're going to be drinking. Yeah. It was just like here's a here's an awesome lunch, and we're going to pour wines while you have lunch. And I thought, wow, this is a great concept. And then Zach, you mentioned as we were sort of preparing for these week's episodes, hey, let's talk about whether or not the future of wineries of successful wineries is operating potentially as restaurants too. And all I could think about was ashes and diamonds. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably in the places where you can get away with it. If ordinances are not restrictive, 100% the future. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is that I think it is a sort of, a nexus point of two different things that we've been talking about on the podcast and that I've been thinking about a lot. And one of them is wine struggle to remain relevant at restaurants that are not affiliated with wineries because of, you know, all the things we've, we've outlined on the podcast before the fact that price point wise, it can be hard to compete sometimes, especially by the glass pricing with cocktails. They don't feel necessarily as fun or kind of connected to the idea of the restaurant as the cocktail program might. And just, a challenge in sort of framing those wines correctly. And obviously, if you're taking the dining experience in-house, you presumably are showing your wines in the best possible setting and highlighting what is great about them. And of course, then generally have the ability to leverage that into sale, whether it's club memberships, case purchases, etc. And along with that is this other piece of it, which, which goes kind of hand in glove, which is wineries designing their guest experiences around keeping you on site as long as possible, yeah. right? I mean, I think about how I'm sure this is true for the two of you also, you know, my early forays into wine tasting, wherever it was, was like, you know, you came in, you tasted through four or five wines and you left, you know, maybe you bought some wine, maybe you didn't, but it was a 15, 20, maybe a 30 minute process. And the whole kind of deal everywhere was like, hey, we know that people want to get to a bunch of different wineries today, especially in places like Napa, which are pretty compact. And they, you know, we're going to try and hook them with the wines. We're going to try and get them to buy, but we're just, we want to get them in and out or we're expecting to get them in and out. And through a variety of different reasons, that has totally changed now. And wineries in a lot of places, not just in Napa, are really designing their guest experiences around, hey, we want to keep you here for an hour, hour and a half, two hours, both because we think the longer you're here, the more likely you're going to spend more money. And also because I think it meets more what uh, some number of visitors are looking for, which is not just tasting the most wines they can in a given day, but in having a really memorable experience like the one you described at Ashes and Diamonds. Yeah, I I find that, that the experience that you're describing of kind of like hopping and quickly drinking and moving on is not is not super pleasant. And yeah. and I guess my question in this is kind of why why now and why why is this changing now? Uh, I think it's changing now because people really do expect a more three sixty experience when they go somewhere, right? It's not just about just like, generally or I think just generally, but especially with 
with tasting. It's it's about the lifestyle. I think this mm-hmm. is the same for spirits. I mean, one of the um, one of the biggest openings of the last year and a half or two years ago was the new um, Jim Beam Distillery or Beam Distillery in outside of Louisville, Kentucky. That you know includes not only tastings and the tour, but a massive restaurant where you can go and have a meal that includes all of the whiskeys that they produce at the distillery. So, you know, Booker, Baker's, all you know, uh, Knob Creek, and a few others. But so that, I think, is just something people are coming to expect. They don't want to simply show up and just taste anymore and be given, like, a little bowl of wafers as a palate cleanser and a glass of water. I think especially for the price, while... Even 10 years ago, I think a lot of Napa wineries were able to justify that this price was just the cost of being able to sample these incredible wines people were willing to pay hundreds of dollars for. Now, especially when it comes to a, a, a different clientele, a newer clientele, a clientele that just wants to be in Napa for the Napa experience, they don't fully understand that price without having something else included. So I think it actually is allowing the wineries to charge even a little bit more, sure. but then layer food on top of it. Um, and they also want to be somewhere for much longer than I think people did in the past. I think, you know, you see about wine tasting, oh, we're gonna hit three or four places in one day, et cetera. Now it's like, no, I'm maybe gonna hit two, like one in the morning, one in the afternoon, or sort of one for my lunch tasting and one for the afternoon. We're gonna go do something else. Um, so I think all of that is what's driving this and the places that execute it the best are the ones that I think wind up garnering the most loyalty amongst the clientele, especially in regions outside of Napa. So you think of places like Virginia where like Early Mountain, for example, has really set up a place where like you they want you to be there the entire afternoon. Yeah. Right. They want a full they, they can do high end dining at one of their restaurants. They can do sort of the food truck vibe at another one of the restaurants, but like the whole idea is that you're there. And they don't need you nor want you to taste and then go somewhere else to eat. It seems to me that in an increasingly kind of competitive landscape, right, like there are more wineries probably. Actually, I don't know if this is true. I'm assuming it is. More wineries in Napa than ever before? Now? Uh, it's yeah. it's pretty sta- – I mean, it's been kind of static because in part because Napa's so – like completely developed right. it's not like Can't it's really. not like a lot of other regions where you could just be like we're planting a new 200 acre vineyard or whatever like there's movement stuff moves around but i don't i don't know that the number of wineries has increased dramatically let's put it that way yeah i i guess it's more like it's competitive right you need to yeah, you're competing yeah. for business it's an extremely popular region obviously and i think it makes sense to me why a place like ashes and diamonds you know, has this food program and and did this when it first opened. It was, it was not revolutionary, but definitely different and stood out as as different and from the wineries that exist, the older fashioned, I should say, wineries that existed, and appeals to a younger clientele. And I think you make a really good point, Adam. Like this is more about selling the lifestyle of it than just the experience. Of, yeah, like wine tasting and hopping. No, and I think it makes a a much more compelling sales pitch for the wines, right? We think about how, in a way, 
you know, like we talked about this when we talked about the episode where Dow was acquired about how like one of Dow's big successes was sort of creating, turning itself into a lifestyle brand. And they did it through big kind of lavish parties and stuff like that. But that kind of connected would be drinkers with their sort of idealized life and say, hey, look, you're doing this like you're at this great party, you're on a yacht or whatever, you're drinking this wine and whether consciously or subconsciously you're going to make the connection there when you're in the grocery store the next time or the wine shop or online or whatever and i think for other brands where wherever they might be there's a lot of value in sort of presenting their wines in this idyllic and sort of idealized setting i also think and this is a part that i really want the two of you to to give me some feedback on i also think that there's the other part of this is it's showing how in a way like I think part of this is that restaurant concepts themselves and the restaurant industry itself is so precarious right now that you almost need some other business element and wine might also be precarious and it might be the kind of two things propping you, uh, each mm-hmm. other up, you know, kind of leaning on one another. Because I think about, you know, we talked about this years ago, Adam, um, about the sort of labor shortage issues in places like Napa, or I think about some of the more, the less developed regions, wine regions where, you know, one of the complaints about say parts of some of the wine regions here in Washington state is that they don't have these sort of really nice dining options for people who might be interested in sort of that kind of, you know, tourism, but, it's like, well, my dining options are pretty bleak. Yeah. And so you've seen wineries in those regions be like, well, we will open or we will either, you know, open with this concept or we will integrate this sort of restaurant concept into what we're doing because we believe it can be both perhaps a revenue generator on its own and also bring people into the winery, help sell wine, help sell wine club memberships, et cetera. And that you need that kind of backstopping to both kind of keep the businesses viable and also I think to attract talent. And I think that's the other piece of this is that, you know, wineries have realized over the years that they are really in a lot of ways, in the ways that we people like us interact with them, are first and foremost hospitality businesses. They're not, you know, kind of production businesses. And obviously the quality of the wine matters and the production side matters and you can't neglect that. But when a lot of your business is based around selling to the public directly, right? You're doing wine club memberships, DTC sales, all that kind of stuff. You have to have that elite level customer experience and guest experience, however you get to it. And these kinds of programs are ways to to do that. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems like uh, it seems like a missed opportunity to not have a food program, like a serious food pro- program. The times I've been to, to wineries in Napa in the past, it was it was kind of shocking what was offered, like the little cheese, plastic <laughs> cheese yeah. cheese uh, selection with some crackers. Like it, it kind of just makes no sense to me. Well, and a lot of that apparently, the, some places will tell you is ordinance based. Like the sure. the they're trying. So th- that's the big issue, right? Is that I think what we. What we have to do is figure out a way that like everybody kind of comes together on this as one, especially in these regions, because the board say they're protecting the restaurants by not letting the wineries serve food or serve food in a, you know, very substantial way. Now, I think a lot of the wineries get away with it by couching it as these tastings, right? So it's a food and drink, beverage tasting experience that you can't get. Right. So you can't just sit down and have lunch at Ashes and Diamonds and order a glass of Ashes and Diamonds wine. You have to book the full experience. You have to book it ahead of time. I think when we did, I booked it on talk. You pay ahead of time, right? So, like, it's all of these things has, have already been guaranteed. Um, but, you know, then if the restaurants are 
not going to serve a lot of Napa wine or going to serve a lot of cocktails, et cetera, then like they're not really benefiting the wineries either. Right. So that's be a conversation of like, well, at the end of the day, we're, we're a region that is about supporting our region. So how do we all come together to do that as one, as opposed to kind of weirdly being competing in conflict with each other? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there's only a few restaurants in Napa that like try to fo- to serve focused, you know, Napa lists. There's a lot of others that are like trying to serve things from all over the country. And they're arguing like, well, we're for everyone. And people don't want to always drink Napa wine after tasting Napa wine. And also the community of Napa doesn't want to drink Napa wine all the time. And like, that's all well and good. But like, there could be those restaurants can exist outside of the tourist areas of Napa, but in the tourist areas, which I think is where the ordinance is really trying to protect, those people probably should be pouring a majority of Napa wines and trying to promote the region, or else you should let the wineries get away with doing what they need to do as well in order to bring a new clientele in. Because I agree with you, like if the, if an ordinance is not the reason that you are only giving me cheese and meat prepackaged in a Ziploc container. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then, like, then it just feels lazy. And I feel like that happens a lot, especially in smaller wine regions where I get that cost is an issue, et cetera. But, like, you go there and the tasting is very boom, boom, boom. And if you're hungry at all, like, well, we have some chips and we have, you know, some some cured meats that you could also buy at Publix. And that is not a great experience that, that a lot of consumers love. And so the consumer's just like, okay, well, like, this is really a place I want to hang out. So I'm just going to bounce. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that kind of experience can be tolerable when you're in a sort of off-the-beaten-path wine region that's charging you relatively little for the tasting and the wine is relatively affordable. I think you unfortunately run into that in places that have grander ambitions for their wines and for their wine prices. And yet, again, I think it be, you know I think there's just less taking it on, at face value when a winery tells you, oh, this pairs beautifully with X, Y, and Z. Much better to show than to tell. We'll put it that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. Let us know what you think. Do you think that uh, there should be more wineries operating as restaurants? Um, and it, I would love to know if listeners have specific places beyond Ashes and Diamonds that they think oh, do this yeah, really well. Oh, yeah, I'd love well. to know that, too. Are there that any other great. wineries that are, like, awesome for food and bev- for their food and for their food program? Obviously, because the beverage is the wine. Yeah. But I, I, I am curious if there's other places that people love as well. Um yeah, but Ashes and Diamonds was, was pretty awesome. I do have to say, it was pretty awesome. I highly recommend it. Cool. All right, guys, I'm going to try to like get over this cold, and I will talk to you on Monday. Have a nice weekend. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. 
Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.